0: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. So, here on stage, we have Esther Perel. Esther Perel is one of the foremost speakers in relationship and sexuality. Her TED Talks have been watched a combined 17 million times. Sorry? 18. Sorry, guys, okay. stop, stop. 18 million times. It went up one million in the few minutes I was reading her bio.
1: Amazing. Dan Savage
0: started out as a columnist in Seattle. His column got picked up eventually being taken to a hundred newspapers simply because he spoke about sex the way you guys talk about sex with your friends. And Dan recently spoke here on the A-Fest stage and he was the first guy ever at A-Fest to publicly use this line. You should be open to any type of sexual fantasy your partner has, they wanna massage your feet, that's all good, they wanna shit in your mouth, no. (laughs) I've never heard anybody get on stage at this fine event and use the phrase shit in your mouth.
2: That's a little more context. but
0: Okay, let's take a moment to take a deep breath and clear the imagery. Energy healers in the room, do your stuff. And finally, Marissa up here. So, so Marissa, clear, clear, clear. So Marissa up here, was a sex columnist for about 10 years. Now, she's a woman who wears many different hats, but what many people don't know is before she became the Marissa Pier who won the award for being Britain's best coach, before she was in magazines in the UK for being one of the top 250 doctors in the UK, even though she doesn't have a degree. She just sounds sophisticated because of how she talks. <laughs> Marissa Pier wrote a sex column for 10 years in four different British papers and received glowing reviews and incredible accolades. And before we take questions from the audience, what I want to do is just ask each of the speakers a key insight that they feel everyone here should integrate and leave the room with. Let's start with you, Marissa.
3: Okay, so I would say don't wait to be in the mood for sex. That's like waiting to be in the mood to exercise. If you wait for motivation to turn up in your bedroom, it often doesn't turn up. But if you just do it, what I call JFD... It actually turns up. It turns up once you've begun. And when I was a sex columnist, people would go, I'm not in the mood, and I'm too tired, and I need to go out, or I need the massage with the feathers and all that stuff that other people say, it. and the Barry White and the candles. And it's like, oh my God, I haven't got an hour and a half to do that. I'm a great believer in JFD, just fucking do it. Because in just doing it, the motivation turns up. And so many women are saying, no, I wasn't in the mood. But when you told me... I made natural killer cells for cancer, and actually orgasms made me younger. I thought, i would just do it. I'll do it for the younger skin, and then I noticed I quite liked it. So it's a big mistake for women, especially, to waste until you're in the mood because you don't always have that amount of time. But if you focus on nature wants you to have orgasms, it makes you younger. It fights depression. Actually, prostaglandin in sperm is a natural antidepressant that when women absorb it, Stops them being depressed. Lots of good reasons for having sex. Only one of them is being in the mood for it. So someone's going to do it the other way around, and then you get in the mood for it. doesn't always work, but it works a lot. Thank
2: you, Marissa. (laughs) (laughs) Dan? There's something I talk about in the column a lot, which I call the price of admission, and it's the price you're willing to pay to be with this person. Like if you go to an amusement park, the price you're willing to pay to ride a ride. And if you pay a certain amount to ride a roller coaster and you complain the whole time you're on the roller coaster about how much it fucking costs to get on the roller coaster, the price of admission wasn't worth it. So don't ride that ride. But if you're with somebody, there's going to be prices of admission you have to pay to be with this person. You're not going to get everything you want. Settling down requires some settling for. And for relationship harmony, if you've determined that to be with this person, this is the price of admission that you are willing to pay, whether it's never having anal sex, whether it's not having kids, whether it's that they're a slob or that they're a neat freak or whatever. There's certain things about them they bring to the table that aren't going to go away, or if there's certain things you're not going to get, you have to decide for yourself, is that a price of admission I'm willing to pay to be in this relationship? And if it is, you not only pay the price, you shut the fuck up about how much it costs. You don't bitch the whole time on the ride about that price. And the example I always use for my own relationship My husband can't make himself a goddamn ham sandwich and put things away. He opens the mayonnaise, (laughs) opens the mustard, opens the meat, (laughs) opens the bread, leaves it all on the counter, and then eats the sandwich and gets up and leaves the plate on the table and everything on the counter. And for the first 11 years we were together, I would go screaming after him to come downstairs and put all this shit away not maybe the first four years, and then one day, instead of nagging him to not do this thing that he's been doing all his life and will do for the rest of his life, I just put it away, and it took a lot less time, and it didn't generate conflict. And I stood there screwing the cap on the mayonnaise thinking to myself, this is the price of admission I'm willing to pay, or one of them, to ride this ride. And now I pick up after him, and I, for the most part, don't bitch about it all the time because he's worth that. That price of admission is one I'm willing to pay. If he had voted for Donald Trump, not a price of admission I would have been willing to pay. (laughs) So you have to be clear about the prices you are and are not willing to pay. And you know, people will write me all the time saying, how do I fix this? How do I change this? And at a certain point, you have to stop trying to change things that are not going to change and ask yourself whether you can accept them, pay the price and stay. And if you can't, then you need to go. I see. And Esther?
1: I'm actually going to start with a riff on this. I think if you want to change the other, change yourself. Because if you systematically do something different, if you now are not going after him, but you're taking care of it, then when he comes down, he doesn't have to go all defensive and all upset about what you were doing. He gets to change. You have changed his reaction by changing yours. And that notion of interdependence, that we are interdependent parts of a system, is gold when you think about relationship. The second thing is, whenever you're not cleaning up, one piece is to do it, but the other thing is to realize that there's probably a lot of things that you never have to think about because he does. And every time you start no, to... No, no,
2: there's no <laughs> price of admission he pays to be with me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perfect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know... I think that idea that at the moment you want a bitch, you begin to actually think about all the things that you are relieved of by the presence of the other person in your life. And that creates a whole different economy in your head. And then when I was listening to Marisa, I thought, yes, there are three doors of entry into sex that we primarily look at. One is desire. And it is today the dominant one, but it actually is not always the most important one for many people. The other is arousal, the physiological excitement, and the third one is willingness. And willingness is what you talk about, is the ability to be willing to just say, let me see where this will take me. I'm not in the mood right now, but you know, I'm not in the mood. I already ate, but I come home and you just prepared something really nice and it smells good. And so I kind of sit down next to you and then I say, can I taste? And then before I know it, I took myself a little plate and then I actually ate the whole thing. I loved it. And the next morning I still say, you know, I didn't really need to eat. I had already eaten. And that notion that I was willing to participate because I was tempted, that because I went with the experience rather than I check myself and I just say not. Sexuality is the only thing by which we have this exceptionalist view at this point, that I have to be completely up for it in order to engage in it. There's a beautiful line by Marcel Proust that I take a lot with me, which is that the true voyage of discovery is not about going to new places, But it is about looking with new eyes.
0: Beautifully said. So we're going to start with a couple of questions from the audience.
3: If there would be a new relationship vow, like a marriage vow, what would it be?
0: So that's an interesting question. (laughs) Rather than the traditional vows of marriage, if there was a new vow that you would make before going into a relationship with someone, what do you think should be in that vow?
3: I think it should be try harder because we have this belief that if they give 50% and I give 50%, then we'll get 100%. But instead of waiting, you have to give them what you most want to get. So you've got to give 100%. We have this belief that the other half is going to meet all our needs. They're not even going to meet half your needs. You have to meet some of your needs yourself, as even your sexual needs, and then they can meet some of your needs. But when you wait for someone to meet all your needs, you're just going to be disappointed. So you should try harder to meet your needs and their needs while understanding that no one is ever going to meet all your needs, ever. And once you can meet some of their needs and some of your needs, you show your partner, oh, so I can meet some of my needs myself and some of your needs, but you don't expect me to meet every need you have because you just set yourself up for massive disappointment. as a dry order while expecting less.
0: Esther Dan, so
2: anything to add? We will be whores for each other. <laughs> we will be what? Whores for each
1: other. (laughs) W-H-O.
2: Not oars. They're not (laughs) canoes. (laughs) Just that you will look to each other. And when you look at each other, you will see why things happen, not why things don't happen. Even if there are some small things that other people are allowed to step in and do, still your partner is the reason that that can happen for you.
1: I will add one. That I will do things for you just because it's you even though I would never want to do this, and that should be good enough. I don't have to want what you want in order to do it. You are a perfectly valid reason for me to do so.
0: Oh, I love that. Beautiful. Let's take another question. If you have a partner that is really addicted to their phone, you also said that You have to make sure that you look for what they want rather than what you want. So what do you think about dealing with phones and someone that's really distracted on them? So, I feel like a lot of people probably have one partner that's more attached than the other. So the question is? How do you deal with someone who's attached to their phone when you want them to be present with you? Or rather, how would you deal with someone who is not fully present with you? Because of their fucking phone.
1: (laughs) I would text them.
2: (laughs) Nothing else to say. (laughs) And what I would text,
1: (laughs) one of the things is really, you're a bunch of entrepreneurs. Everybody here knows that if you were doing this with your clients, your business wouldn't be going too well. Treat me like you treat your client. That's a good start. Because with your client, you're present, you're focused, you look at them in the eyes, you respond, it's a whole thing. And don't take me for granted like that. But that's not what I would text. What I would text is, <laughs> there's a woman in the other room, and she's been thinking about you, and she was wondering if um, she could, uh... and then you continue. <laughs> and that would be a playful thing, because the point is, enter the system, be playful with it, and subvert it.
0: Beautiful. Next question.
1: I am curious, to my understanding
0: all of you are in serious committed long-term relationships. So I wanted to know what is the one thing that is a current struggle in your relationships and how you're working to resolve them.
3: Oh, that's a good question. Super, super. Very nice.
0: Thank you for putting all our speakers in an uncomfortable spot. <laughs> we will try to make sure she never gets let into. <laughs> I'm a, kidding. I'm kidding. Amazing question.
1: I think it's a great question. It's a great question. <laughs> <Very laughs> you are looking at. It's so really everybody hard, else hard for go Esther first. because
0: everything is perfect.
1: You know, I said this morning to Jack, I said, Jack, they're asking me questions about this, about that. I said, how would you want me to answer? He says, you don't answer. I said, (laughs) why? And this is the sentence that he once gave me a long time ago, which made an enormous amount of sense. He says, every one person's biography is another person's betrayal. Because if I talk about the other person, I am actually telling a story that I have taken, you know? But here is a difference that we have. I am high energy. One word of my husband is 10 of mine. We are on completely different rhythms and also in terms of age. And I am into the, what can I still do right now until, you know, for the next 10 years? And he is into the, I just want to meditate, to read, to sit, to paint. And when we talk now about traveling, it becomes a very different energy. I still want all of this. And he has done plenty of this. And he's actually much more content to go and stay put and be inward. And that, it's a negotiation we have always had, but it is a negotiation that is becoming more rigid.
0: Thank you, Esther. Dan, would you like to share?
2: Uh, No, but I will. (laughs) Um, My husband and I have, like, cliche conflicts around money because I am not a person who spends money, and he is a person who spends money. And that's a rich source of conflict always in a relationship. But we have the phone problem, and we both have it, where he's addicted to Instagram and I'm addicted to Twitter. And he'll be on his phone, and then I'll get on my phone, because he's on his phone, and then I'll put my phone down and say, could you get the fuck off your phone? And he'll say, you were on your phone. And it becomes this (laughs) rolling conflict about who was on the phone first and who was on the phone longer. I really fucking hate phones. There was so much. It would happen in our relationship pre-smartphones that was just, we were both there and we were both bored and we looked to each other. And now we're both there, we're both bored, and we can look to the universe. And we're having to be much more intentional about putting our fucking phones down, which is hard in this news environment for a news junkie because every two seconds someone's getting indicted or this a special Mm -hmm. prosecutor being appointed or the world is burning down in some news. (laughs) And for my husband, every two minutes, somebody else has liked his latest nearly naked photograph on Instagram. You <laughs> have to check in with that right away. And don't tweet that.
0: Marissa, since your husband is in the room, let's make him uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, <laughs> no. I know that for a relationship to work, you must have best friend chemistry and sexual chemistry. And I was really alarmed when I was a sexual columnist that of marriages were celibates, really shocking. And in fact, it's actually more than that, because the other 50%, I got to do it, or he or she might go elsewhere. So, we work very hard to keep the best friend and the sexual chemistry going. Best friend is easy. And for the sexual chemistry, I think it's really important to be playful. You know, I always act really girlish around my husband. He brings that out in me. So as I see, people look at me going, well, you're sitting on your husband's knee. How old are you? But it's not how old I am, it's how old I feel. So be playful, be girly and keep that going. It's really, really important because we also work together. So, You know, occasionally I wake up and he's on the end of bed going, babe, I've got a great idea. And then just when I go to bed, he's got another great idea. And I'm like, we have to not talk about work all the time. So remember, for your relationship, you must have best friend chemistry and you play with your best friend and you must have sexual chemistry and you have to have them both I see some people go, the sex is amazing, but I don't know if you even like this person. But oh my god, the fireworks, so sex is just incredible. And other people go, Well, we're best friends, we're gonna well, we never touch each other. And they think that's okay. It's not okay. You need both. Sex is the glue, I think, that makes a relationship really special. But before you commit to someone, put the sex to one side and go, could this person also be my best friend? So many people marry people because It's so hot and heavy and amazing. And that just can't last. Nature doesn't want it to last. Okay, you've had five years doing it all night. You must have produced some kids. And I'm going to shut your sex drive right down so you can get up and look after these kids you just spent three years making nonstop. And so it's very hard to keep that passion going because nature doesn't want you to. So best friend chemistry, sexual chemistry, be playful.
2: I want to disagree with a little bit. Like, I do think sex is important, but I think sexual compatibility is hugely important. And there are people out there whose sexual compatibility really orbits around a disinterest in sex. I think we do a disservice to those who are in companionate marriages or companionate relationships, where sex isn't a part of it or central, but it's intimate, it's loving, it's rewarding, and it's as much a marriage or a relationship, I think, as one that is cemented by sex. And I say this as someone who's in a long-term relationship, a marriage, that is absolutely cemented by sex. You know, Sometimes Terry and I joke that if we weren't fucking, we wouldn't be talking or with each other. And I think that sexual connection is a glue in our relationship. Mm. But I've spoken to and written about and met a lot of people who are in loving, companionate relationships where neither feels that they're lacking anything and they feel very richly rewarded. And we don't want to put too much emphasis on sex because some people, that's the most rewarding relationship for them. And instead of saying, this is what works for everyone, we have to ask people, what do you need? And what works for you? And if this is working for you, if your sexual compatibility is around no sex, then that's as valid as my marriage.
1: I have another disagreement.
0: (laughs) I love this, guys. We now have our speakers mildly disagreeing with each other. Let's see where this goes. Esther.
1: I will never call my husband my best friend. I have best friends. He's my partner. He's my husband. He's the man I live my life with, I share my life with. But think that this notion of how the spouses became the best friends is very, very interesting. And I think that there are many things that I'd rather go to my best friends too that are not necessarily things I should go to him about, including bitching about him, if need be. (laughs) It's like this notion that you can contract everything into one person is really a little much these days. So I understand the metaphor of it, but I actually think it's an interesting idea to unpack, to not just take it for granted. You know, sometimes my husband is not just a hairy woman. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I have other people I need to talk to.
2: <laughs>
1: and it's not him, and he's not interested in some of these things. And the notion that then I would say, I can't talk to him, I can't communicate, he's not it's not true. It's just that we need more than one person. We need different people about different things, and we have other best friends. And, by the way, Because we think of our partner as the best friend, we have invented a whole new concept, which was virtually inexistent 10 years ago, which is emotional infidelity. Emotional infidelity, because now I really can't even go and confide in somebody else and feel levels of intimacy and connection with other people. You share so much with the person you make your life with that is not just about that intimate thing. There are many more people we can love than people we can make a life with.
0: Beautifully said. Next question. So, there's evidence that 10,000 years ago, we did our relationships inside of egalitarian, polyamorous tribes. And then we went to extended families. And then we went to nuclear families. And then we went to single and dating models, right? So, I'm wondering is it the container that we're doing relationships in that's creating a lot of the conflict that we're seeing today? And should we go backwards? to where we started? That's a beautiful question, Shai. Let me recap the question. Is the container in which we're defining relationships today flawed in some way? And by that container, we would use words such as marriage or monogamy or the other examples that Shai offered. Who would like to address that?
3: Well, we were never designed to stay with someone for 70 years. So that is hard because the person you're crazy about at 25, maybe is not going to do anything for you when you're 85. And, you know, to expect a relationship to go the distance like that, you really got to pick a lot better, but you can have the marriage you want nowadays. I mean, the boundaries are different. Society doesn't say anymore you're married. You can't be unfaithful. You can't look at porn. You can't be unfaithful in your head. It's really up to you to choose what works for you without making other people believe that, I mean, I have friends who have open marriages. I have friends who think that looking at someone like that is unfaithful. They all do their own thing. I have friends whose marriages should not work. And yet they're in some of my friends who've got the longest marriages. It's like, it's broken every rule and It really works. So forget about what society says and work out what works for you. Because the more you try to live up to someone else's expectation, the harder it is, the more you go, this works for me. And I don't have to explain it or justify it. It works for me. So I would forget about anyone else's container except your own. And if it works for you, then keep making it work. Dan. Well,
0: actually, Dan, I want to ask you to share something you shared with me in a private interview. When you spoke about how we term things such as divorce Mm -hmm. a failure. Well, in actuality, there's a normalcy about it.
2: Right. You know, we talk about the success of a relationship or the failure of a relationship, and it's a kind of perverse definition of failure if that everybody got out of it alive. It's a failure. We don't apply that standard to airplanes or restaurants or cars, but we apply that to relationships. If it ended at the funeral home, then you win. Your relationship was a success. You're together 50 years, somebody died. Congratulations. (laughs) And that relationship could have involved contempt, neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, Both partners could have been absolutely miserable and at each other's throats for 50 years. Successful marriage. Two people are together for 20 years. They raise a couple kids. They're best friends. And they outgrow each other. And they move on. And it's amicable. And they can be together. And they don't make their children feel pulled in one direction or another. And there's still love there. And there's a mutual acknowledgement of a time well spent together in growth. And they're on to new relationships. That marriage was a failure. And I think that's a bizarre standard. I think we have to redefine what a successful relationship is. And we need to, you know, we talk about LTRs as the gold standard. And the longer the LTR, the more successful the relationship. We should be able to think about, and we should think about, I encourage people to think about having successful STRs, that you can have a successful short-term relationship, whether that's a relationship that lasted while you were in Ibiza, whether it's a relationship... that lasted for a few years or while you raised a couple of kids together or whatever that an ltr and be a success or a failure or an str and be a success or a failure that we have to look at the emotional dynamics and the growth and the compassion and the connection to assess failure and success not is somebody dead right. but Sounds like you read Sex at Dawn by Chris Ryan that people still debate. And in some ways, it's impossible to extrapolate from bonobos and what was going on 20,000 years ago exactly how we lived. It does seem that there's something about human sex and connection that makes us a pair bonding species, but not a sexually monogamous one. How long those pair bonds last and whether those pair bonds are sexually or emotionally exclusive, I think are important conversations we need to have. Because I agree with Esther that we place incredible strains on our Pair bonded relationships when we expect everything from them—best friend, and helpmeet, and co-parent—and we need to have other people in our tribe who love and support us emotionally, and I think sometimes sexually as well. Thank you, Dan. Esther,
1: I mean, if we go less than ten thousand years, you know, there's only one commandment that is repeated twice in the Bible: once for doing it, and once just for thinking about it. So somebody understood human nature. Somebody understood that we have often practiced a dual reproductive strategy, social monogamy and sexual promiscuity. And the question that you ask cannot be asked outside of the question of what did we expect from relationships or from family or from bonding? Do you bond in order to accomplish certain things, to create stability, to create economic support, to create companionship, to raise children, to create legacy? Or do you bond with other people in order to create a new purpose and a sense of meaning and fulfillment for yourself? And if you don't have that at the beginning of the question, then the entire conversation about are we promiscuous or are we pair bonders, it doesn't reveal enough. You know, we've always had communal living. Sometimes we've done it through extended family. Now we are doing it through non-monogamies, consensual non-monogamies. But the needs are the same. Fundamental human needs have not changed. The modes of finding them and communicating about them, those shift.
2: And when we talk about monogamy... Whether it's natural or not is, I think we can all agree that it is not natural. We're not a naturally monogamous species. Whether it's beneficial or not, whether it's a relationship model that works for some folks, even if it's a struggle, that's a different discussion. There are certainly benefits. And I say this as someone in a non-monogamous relationship. There are benefits to a monogamous commitment that I and others like me should be able to recognize around safety, paternal security for men, emotional security for some. Not that it's a fail-safe protection, but for some, it's very satisfying. and it makes them feel much more secure in that relationship. And if that's what they choose, and they find someone who wants to choose it with them, even recognizing, and I think it's helpful for that couple who chooses monogamy together to recognize that it is not natural, that it is going to be a bit of a struggle, so that if there is an error, a mistake, a slip-up, that there will be some compassion and understanding and ability to forgive.
1: I think it's very important not to become ideological about this and not to try to prove that this model is better than that model and here is evolutionary theories to support it and all of that. It's really what Marisa says. The benefit we have today is that we have the option, some of us in the West, to have more than one choice. Let's exercise that without having to prove that it is the better choice. And
2: we who are from the non-monogamous kind of crowd, one of the things that drives me crazy is monogamous people coming up to me and telling me, you're doing love wrong. And the corrective for that is not non-monogamous people going up to monogamous people and saying, you're doing love wrong that we each get to do love how it works for us yes. as a couple or as an individual.
1: Well, so.
3: Because people tell themselves the story, you know, my parents were together for 50 years and that's what I want, so I'm looking for something that really doesn't probably exist. Oh, or my parents, my parents divorced and my aunt's divorced, and so I can never have a relationship because look what I was brought up in. They're just stories. You know, my parents were crazy. My father had sex with every old pair we had. My mother had an be our next-door neighbor for 11 years. And then my father moved, and he moved next to us again. How weird is that? It was very interesting. My father was a headmaster, too. I mean, he was doing everybody. But, you know, I chose monogamy. I know I have lots of friends who didn't. But, you know, just because you came from a crazy upbringing or a perfect upbringing... Don't keep telling yourselves, I can't have that because, or it's never going to be as good as because, or my dad cheated, so all men cheat, or my dad was secretly gay, so therefore I can't trust anyone. Decide what the relationship is that you want, and then work really hard to find a person that you fit with, and have a great relationship. And don't live by anyone else's rules, because some people make their rules the most important thing. My rule is, you must never walk out when we're having a fight. Well, They might have a different rule to you. You have to understand that just because you have a rule, the person you're with has a different rule. And you should at least understand what their rule is and then try and flex the rules a bit.
0: Thank you. Let's take another question from the audience.
3: You've been talking a lot
2: about communicating with your partner, but sometimes in multicultural relationships, when you have like different languages in your brain, it's a bit hard to express your feelings.
3: So I want to know if you have any insight in how to deal when
2: you have a conflict of some sorts and your mind is speaking in one language and your mouth is speaking in another. (laughs) I'll tell you what
1: I think is one of the most useful and underused modes, that's writing. I write to my children. I write to my partner. I advise a lot of the people I work with to write and their particular way of writing. And many of you travel, you have planes. They're the best moments in suspension. And it's like, I've been thinking. And as I've been thinking about us, I was noticing that. And when I think about that, I realize that I have, and then I wonder, is that something that you feel as well? And I notice that we've actually not spoken about it in such a long time. And I wondered if you missed that too, because I've been missing this a lot. And I would love for us to be able to, on occasion, talk about this without falling into our regular traps. And I know that the reason we fall in our traps is because at least one of the things that happens is that I do this and this and this. And then when you write, the best thing, if you can, is to do it handwritten. The Hindus talk about how the writing through the hand is what conveys the emotion. And your first version, you toss. You just purge. You get it out. The second one is the one that you will share. But I think that when you read... And I do a lot of sessions where the people bring the letter and they read it out loud. I read the one I received or I read the one I wrote. And then when you read and you're alone, you're not able to instantly react. You're actually taking it in. You sit with this. You go back sometimes a few times. It slows things down, which is what we often need. It allows you to put words, to shape them, to think about it, to come back to it, to let it sit and not just to blurt. We are so many of us pressing that button so fast.
0: That's a really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful tip. I'd like to ask a question to the three of you. If there was a specific practice or ritual or tip that you could give people in relationships, a habit of sorts that you think could really magnify the essence of their relationship, what would be your advice? So Esther, you spoke about writing. I'd love to hear if Dan or Marissa have an idea or a tip.
3: I think when you're having a fight with someone, you always need to say whose need is more important. Like, I need to go visit my mother. I get it that my mother drives you crazy, but my need is to visit her. And often, instead of fighting, you just say, you know, okay, you need your children to come and stay the weekend. I kind of need to have a weekend on my own with you. But which need is more important in that instance? It's the children. So, whenever you're fighting, instead of fighting, try and say which need is more important. It kind of really narrows it down very quickly. And usually you can see whose need it is, sometimes not yours, sometimes it is. It just makes it easier because When people say we've been fighting all weekend, your fight should be over in five minutes. Your fight should never be a history lesson. Well, you know, last year I didn't want your daughter to come over and she came and said, Why can't mine come? You can only fight about now. And if you don't make it a history lesson, don't do the eye rolling and the contempt and scorn and mockery, which people find very hard to recover from. And just say, Okay, whose need is more important? You need to go out? You want me to come with you. I need to stay in and have an early night. Just try and bring in the needs. It's a really great way of ending conflict. Even I need to have sex. We haven't had sex for ages. And yeah, you need to go to sleep. But really, we're talking about four and a half minutes here. So <laughs> often you can then work out the need. And it's a really good way to do it. Well, so yeah. many women write to me and say, I haven't got time. And you know, the average man, not, of course, the men in this room, take four and a half minutes. And... <laughs> Most people have got four and a half minutes if you don't have to do all the other stuff. So the need is a great way to resolve conflict. Thank you, Marissa.
2: Can you rephrase the question? Well, is there a particular
0: exercise or ritual Um. or practice that you think one can integrate in their relationship to create a more enjoyable, beautiful experience?
2: Uh, You do for each other. There are things you're going to do for each other, and those should become part of the Sort of infrastructure of the relationship, the girders and beams of the relationship, are the ways in which you take care of each other, where you're not expecting when you perform this task, and I think they're real physical tasks, you're not expecting necessarily acknowledgement or praise, because it's just one of those things you do for each other to take care of each other, that then you can rely on. And the relationship itself, the rest of the sex and the emotions and the hanging out and the conflicts and everything else is kept together and supported by that infrastructure of doing for each other. So an example be you putting away the sandwich. Right. He does the laundry. I do the dishes. He'll cook and I'll get up and do all the goddamn dishes. And I don't complain about it. And there's no scorekeeping because it kind of roughly evens out. Well, there's some complaining about the dishes because he hasn't done dishes for 20 years, so he never thinks to how to economize around the amount of dishes he's filled mini dirty. But sometimes I point out you could have done this with like six pans instead of 12. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Esther, there another.
1: I think there's a few small ones. One that I'm trying to do, can't tell you I've succeeded, is to leave the phones out of the bedroom to get an alarm clock. And to wake up in the morning and not have the phone be the alarm clock so that then the next thing becomes looking at the messages to actually turn to my partner, my husband, to just have a minute of checking in with each other before the rest. Just even a good hug, just a snuggle, just something before we go into what you call the universe. That's a big one. I think... Doing for each other and accompanied with the, I think, thank yous. Sometimes I just leave and I've been like, "Ah, and I'm on a rush and I'm late and I'm running and I'm just that. Then I'm sitting, you know, in the subway and then I just write a little note, just acknowledging, thank you, that you can handle all of this. All the stuff that we do with other people, that's what's interesting. We just don't do enough of that with the person that we are with. It's these kinds of rituals, I think, that make you feel that you matter. Because what is the degradation of a relationship? Is when you start to feel that you've become a function, more than a person. You matter for what you do and less for who you are in the life of the other person. And as long as you continue to feel meaningful, that you matter, that you actually enjoy the being an actor in that story. Otherwise you start to say, why am I in this story? Who am I in this story? I want to go matter somewhere else a lot more. Thanks. And
3: being grateful, I often find that not just with my partner, but just imagine your life without them, and that always brings you back to even when they're annoying you, how grateful you are. Because I find that very effective. Just imagine your life without them. If they weren't there, if they died, if they left, if they found someone else. Yes. And it does help you to be so appreciative of the fact that you've got, because whatever your problem is, it's someone else's fantasy. You know, your husband wants to have sex every day. You're lucky. There are people who love to have that problem. They make a mess. they are people who love to have a husband that makes a mess. So when you're moaning and bitching, just stop and go, who would love to have this problem? Is my problem someone else's fantasy dream come true? Yeah, it is. It really is. And that helps you stay in gratitude a lot. Thank you.
0: Let's take another question from the audience.
3: There's a lot of people who are here in relationships, but there is a lot of people who aren't. And what I'm finding is
1: there's a lot of available people, but it doesn't seem like we're able to come together. I know beautiful, successful women all here in this room wanting so badly
3: to be in a relationship and all these single, handsome men, but we're not getting together. And I just want to, Understand your idea about that is, what do we need to do to make that happen besides the party tonight? (laughs) I would say, stop fearing rejection. We come on the planet with two needs, find connection, avoid rejection. It's how we survive on the planet. I must connect, but I also must make sure I don't get rejected. And in the world of Tinder and where there's so many other people, we do fear being rejected. I could go and say to that person, would you like to be with me? They go, no, Why would I wouldn't want to be with you. Or would you like to have a coffee with me? No, no. And so we're so scared of being rejected because we used to die from rejection, that we still... Think that rejection might just kill us and be that We're brave. so scared of it
2: that we yeah. reject ourselves yeah, in advance. Yeah, exactly. We don't I'll go up say, to yeah, that person yeah. for fear that they might reject yeah. us, so we've just rejected ourselves yeah. for them.
3: We're hardwired to be scared of rejection, but you know, you can just remember nobody can reject you unless you agree with everything they say and you know, thank God your first boyfriend or girlfriend rejected you you'd still be with them. Rejection can be the best thing. I'm so happy my first boyfriend broke my heart and jumped all over it because when I met him 10 years later, I was like, oh, thank you, God, so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for making this guy reject me because I'd still be with him otherwise. I'm very glad I wasn't. So don't be scared of rejection. Take a leap of faith. Ask people out talk to them. The very worst thing they can go is no, and better to find out no early because there'll be someone else that will say yes. But a lot of women won't do that. And men too. That, oh, I ask people out that I don't really want to even go out with, but that beautiful person over there, that why would they want to be with me? Why not? Ask people out or but, just join something with them.
2: That fear of rejection you know, extends past getting to yes. Yeah. You walk up to somebody, you talk to them And you connect and maybe you hook up and maybe you start dating, but you're withholding things. You're not telling them the full truth about yourself emotionally. You're not sharing everything you are or want sexually for fear that this person that you now are invested in and would like to keep around might reject you. And that is a cancer because the longer you wait to really roll out who you really are to risk rolling out who you really are. And that's really what it's about. Risk, fearing rejection, you have to take that risk. The more consequential the rejection is going to feel if it comes, you know, if you guys are fundamentally sexually incompatible and you didn't share who you really were sexually for fear that they might reject you for that reason, you will ultimately get to that rejection, but maybe you'll have two kids. Or maybe you'll be like five years into it and you may have missed opportunities with other people who you would have been as emotionally connected as you are with this person, but also sexually compatible. And sexual compatibility is huge, especially if what you want is a sexually exclusive relationship. The letters I get, half of them in a week, we are best friends, everyone always says that. We get along great, I love him, he loves me or she loves me. We agree politically, da, da, da. we can talk all night, but the sex is terrible, da-da-da-da, i have hung in there hoping that it would get better, we've worked on it, nothing, nothing, nothing. And my answer is get in a time machine and break up earlier and sooner, because you should have been prioritizing sexual compatibility. It's as important in a sexually exclusive relationship not even in a sexual relationship. It's as important as emotional, political, religious compatibility. But a sex negative culture convinces you that you're a dirty sex pervert if you prioritize it equally to those other things that you're prioritizing when you're searching for a partner.
3: And while you're fearing rejection because you're not perfect, I have many clients who really are perfect, top models, movie stars, they're always the unhappiest people of all. Well, perfect people tend to be alone because actually we like people that are flawed because it lets us be flawed. It's quite nice when you take your clothes off and as the other person's got a little bit of a time, you think, oh, I don't have to cold it in anymore now because they're flawed too. Flawed people can have relationships with flawed people, people who try to be perfect and show they're perfect. They get left. I mean, you know, Diana got left for Camilla and. Kimberly and Charles are really happy. She happens to think she's super hot. She's got a great personality. She's got incredibly high self-esteem. She's never feared rejection in her life. But people who are perfect get rejected actually more because nobody wants to hang out with perfect. They make them feel bad about themselves. And flawed people have great relationships with other people who are flawed. So don't fear rejection and don't think, well, I need to be perfect first, and I won't be rejected be you because nobody can reject you unless you give them your permission and you never ever have to do that ever.
0: So I'd like to now ask you guys, what would be a question that you wish someone had asked?
3: Why do I keep picking the same types over and over and over again? And the answer is, well, two things. First of all, the mind loves what is familiar because familiar makes us safe, and we're kind of hardwired to go for what's familiar because we feel safe. So you meet some guy in a bar that diminishes you, and you think, oh, I feel like I've known him all my life. Well, you have. It's your dad, and you're not supposed to have sex with your dad. (laughs) Or I found this really cold, distant woman and I just feel comfortable with her because that's your mom. And guess what? You're not supposed to have sex with your mom either. So it's the familiar. The brain loves what is familiar. And we keep attracting the same type until we decide to make what is familiar unfamiliar. And that's just a matter of choice. When people we'll say this person is too good for you, what they're saying is their behavior is so unfamiliar. I need to run back to the people that treat me badly because that's familiar. And you have to make a choice. I will make this familiar. I'll make a nice person, a good person who I might have said was a boring person because I thought excitement and drama was good just because it's familiar because I came from a crazy house. Just decide to use that word. What do I want? Can I make it familiar? Will I make it familiar? And if you make a decision to make different behavior familiar, it works. Other thing about the mind, which is rather vexing apart from its need to keep going to what's familiar is it likes to create the scene you were grown up in and then put a happy ending on it. So women who are hit will often attract a man that hits them because it's familiar and then try to make him lovely and kind and a pussycat because the mind wants to create a scene you've known all your life but change the ending. Life is too short to change the ending, change the beginning. Go for a different type. Make it familiar. I mean, I can say, oh, every boyfriend I've had is an alcoholic. Every woman I meet runs off with my friends or takes all my money. So you need to ask yourself a question. Do they remind you of something? Yes. Then move on. So make a decision to make what you want familiar and what you don't want unfamiliar. And don't try to change the ending. Change the beginning. Then you can have a beautiful relationship. Don't wait for a guy to ask you out. Go and ask them out. Change it. The change is a decision to change. Decision means to cut off from an old behavior. Cut off from it and you can have whatever you want. Thank you.
0: Dana, Esther, would you
2: like to go next? I hate questions like this. It's like having a noose around your neck. I just. The Esther, why don't you give Dan a question? Because you're familiar with Dan's <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay to choose or to decide that being in a partnered relationship is not for me?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely okay. You know, more and more people are living alone and more and more people are single. And a lot of people who are single and living alone and absolutely content feel like they have to perform misery because we're all supposed to want a partner. And that's what good, healthy people want is a partnership. And there are good, healthy people out there who are perfectly content, who don't want that, who feel compelled to run around pretending that they do want it and that the lack of it is immiserating when it is not. Just in the same way that a lot of people who want non-monogamy will make monogamous commitments because they have it in their heads that good people want to be monogamous. They should try and do this thing that isn't the thing that makes them happy. You know, a sexless relationship, a companionate marriage, if that makes you happy, that's great. And you don't have to feel bad about it. There's nothing inadequate about that. Being a single person and having maybe a series of relationships or connections over the course of your life, or not, if that's what makes you happy and what makes you content, there is nothing wrong with you. You are not broken. You have to look inside to figure out what makes you content and what makes you whole and not allow people to assign that to you from outside.
1: Do you have one for me? Uh, or Maurice? Th- ah! <laughs>
2: or oh, Esther's I, didn't I few,
1: but uh, <laughs> I
3: would have one about, well, obviously not for you personally, but about learning from your last relationship that didn't work. So when people say to me, my first marriage failed, I say your first marriage is a starter marriage. Don't call it a fail. You call it a starter marriage. What did you learn from it? And they like that. Oh, it's just a starter marriage. Yeah, so it, I learned stuff and I'm going to take that into the real one. But what would you say to people who aren't learning from their previous relationships and just don't understand that the next one can be better, that you can learn so much from what went wrong?
1: I think it's a fantastic question because I'm actually literally working with a woman and I know the relationship from 20 years ago. So it's just, and she's in revisionism. She has decided that he was abusive the whole time, that he treated her poorly and he on occasion did, but I remember this. So... When I say to her, you know, what have you learned? It's all about how she won't let anybody else do this to her again. It's entirely from a victim perspective, from what was done to her. And the questions I ask people at the end of a relationship is, what do you take with you from this relationship? What are the things that will make you smile when you think about it? What are the things that, you know, you wish you had done differently? What do you want your partner, your ex, to take with them from you? How do you want to be remembered? And to make this a lot more complex than just, you know, here's the stuff that's bad that I will make sure not to find again. The rate of divorce in the U.S. for first marriages is now gone down from 50 to 48, but it's close to 50 still. But the rate of second marriages for divorce is 65%. So everybody wants to find out, like, why is it Has nobody learned anything. Didn't you do it better? And okay, there is the, we've done it the first time, the children, but the bottom line is that the first time around, people too often think it failed because the other. Mm. And it's only after they have done this a few times and they realize that the constant factor is them, (laughs) that they finally, some of them are willing to take a look at, say, what is it that I do? And not just what do I let others do to me, that's a piece of it for some, but what is it that I do? And I love your thing about change the beginning instead of changing the end. You know, how can I enter in this differently? Who do I want to be in this relationship that will be different from who I was the time before? And these are very simple questions and not such easy answers or even easy things to think about. And the second piece around this would be about trust. Because ultimately that is, you know, underneath a lot of what we're talking about. In what ways did you break the trust? Especially when somebody says the other person cheated on me. And I always say betrayal comes in many forms. What was yours? Why the things that you supposedly promised? To me, one of the hidden secrets in a relationship This goes with this question to you too. I always ask people, when you chose that person, what was the secret bargain that you did with yourself? Underneath every relationship, there is a deal that I struck with me for which I recruited you, which often you're not even aware of and often myself either. That's the familiar roles I go back to. And when things break down, the rage that you get is not only in relation to what's happening. It's often in relation to the shattering of the secret deal that I had done to myself that you're not fulfilling the way that I needed it to be. And that story, uncovering that hidden truth is really where a lot of the work needs to take place. Yes.
0: So, we have a few minutes left, and I simply would love to ask each of you to just give a closing word or a closing piece of advice.
3: I'm going to say something that I say to a lot of my clients when they're having problems. We play the only part we've ever known until that part becomes your own, until someone says fuck that part. Why don't you go out and play a different part? We're given parts. We have a script in our childhood. I got to play this part, the kid that no one loved, the one who had to great straight A's, the pleaser, the difficult one, the carer. So we do play the only part we've ever known. But anytime in your life, you can go, I'm ready for a new script now. I think I'd like a new part. So play the only part we've ever known. It's a bit like, you know, when I go to weddings, my dad's still doing his 60s dance moves. He does the twist and my mom would do all of that. And my dad is never dancing like that. And my mom isn't dancing like that because we do the only moves we've ever known until those moves become our dance moves. And then my daughter would be horrified if her grandmother was doing her dance moves. And I'm horrified too. But just like you can change your dance moves. Whatever part you're playing and you've made it your own, it's never too late ever to play a different part, to decide the part you want to play, especially in a marriage or a relationship and the part someone else is going to play. So look at the part you played for a long time and decide to change it. Remember that little poem because it wakes you up. I play the only part I've ever known, made that part my own. Now it's time to play a better part, get a better script, learn it off by heart play a better part, and your life will change wonderfully.
2: Um, I just think it's important for people to remember that they're always alone. (laughs) 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 Even in a relationship, you're still on your own. Um, You have a responsibility to yourself, you have a responsibility to your partner, but you're still individuals, and you have to carve out autonomous zones for yourself to preserve your sense of self. And that sounds just like buzzwordy crap, but the person that you're with fell in love with the person that you are. And if you just subsume the person that you are in them, you become less attractive to them over time. And I think you have to give each other freedom and give each other zones of autonomy, including, and this is not a plug for non-monogamy or open relationships, including zones of erotic autonomy. Because I get so many letters and questions from people who are threatened by the fact that their partner has desires that they cannot meet or don't just focus on them exclusively. And of course they do, just as you do. You have the same sorts of desires that aren't just about your partner necessarily. And being able to celebrate that your partner has desires and interests that aren't yours, that you can't satisfy, and yet they choose to be with you and stay with you, and to take that for the compliment it is rather than the threat that so many perceive it to be, makes her a happier and more secure relationship. Because then you don't waste a lot of time policing each other for evidence of what you should both accept our basic fundamental truths about each other, that you're still individuals. You have a want and a need and a desire for each other, but you have wants and needs and desires that will never go fulfilled because you chose each other. And that's something that we grieve every day in a relationship and that we should celebrate every day in a relationship.
1: So I want to build on these two things. Every time they speak, I have to think, okay, so that's been said. Now I have to think (laughs) about something else. But, you know, I had three thoughts. Trust is an active engagement with the unknown, says Rachel Botsman. And I think that notion that trust in itself is risk-taking and that it is often a kind of risk-taking that many of us are willing to take in various other parts of our lives, but not in our relationships. I think much of what I see is people who let their relationships drift. They became lazy, complacent. They forgot how to be willful and intentional. If you listen to us, I think one of the things you hear is that all of us are actually quite diligent. We're involved with these things that we call our relationships. We, Each of us in our own ways, but we are willful, we're intentional, we are premeditated about it. We don't just let it happen. Too many relationships really fall in a state of disrepair just because they just got left to rust. Couples who have an intensity or a spark or a passion are not couples that don't go through boredom and through intermittent eclipses like the moon and don't have their ebbs and flows. They all do the same as every other relationship. But what they have that is different is that they know how to resuscitate when it goes down, they know what to do when they feel like the energy has been sapping out to kind of bring back focus, attention, energy, you know, intensity, creativity. It's that. It's not that you have couples who have it and couples who don't. Those who have it have everything the other ones also have, but they just know what to do to get themselves back in gear when it's gone again, because it comes and goes again and again.
0: Thank you, Esther. Thank you to all our panelists. Let's give them a big round of applause. I'm Vishen Lakhiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.